Ghouls. Happy Hump Day and welcome to Ghoul Friends Podcast. Brought to you by your best ghoul friends, Lucy and Lindsay. Grab your blankets, snacks and good vibes for tonight's sleepover, where the category is always horrifically spooky. If you want to keep up with us on the socials, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at GirlfriendPod on Twitter and Girlfriends underscore podcast on Instagram. You can also listen to us on all podcasting platforms where we release new episodes every Wednesday. And if you want to follow me on my personal socials, you can find me on Twitter and Twitch at Lulu underscore Pew. And I'm at Hi It's Lindsay underscore on all social media. Now let's get spooky. Hey ghouls, happy hump day and welcome back to Ghoul Friends Podcast. I hope you had a great week um, and I hope you enjoyed the absolute um, interesting episode we had last week on Hinged Horror Hour with my best friend Ash. That was uh, eye-opening to say the least, our little fun special mini episode. Fortunately, our best school, Lindsay, isn't back yet. Please do send her all the love on socials. Hi, it's Lindsay. You can find her there. Um, but I am not alone today. I have a lovely guest with me today. We have Jan. How are you doing today, Gul? I am very good. Thanks for asking. <laughs> so today for the spooky sleepover, we are going to be speaking about self-care comfort horror movies. Now, before we get into the theme and the films that we've chosen, Jan, do you want to tell us a little bit about your corner of the internet and kind of like how you got into horror films? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'm a writer, I'm a playwright, screenwriter, also a very anxious, neurodivergent person. And that comes (laughs) to play because, um, you know, my earliest childhood memories were always feeling very frightened of everything. I was very shy, um, did not have a lot of friends, um, didn't talk much, but I gravitated towards horror as soon as I, kind of discovered it. Um, I think I discovered it when I was nine and Scream was on TV. I was, it just delighted me to no end. And um, my dad actually, he enjoys the genre too. And I also, we didn't really have a lot of like parental limitations on what we were allowed to rent. And my dad even encouraged it. So as soon as he got wind of um, the fact that my brother and I liked horror, he would recommend things to us so we probably saw I mean I saw both the films that we're about to talk about like probably when I was around 10 um you know I'd seen like all the classics and just I have an endless hunger for anything creepy dark and disturbing it's my favorite it's it is my (laughs) (laughs) self-care and and it's uh and I felt that it quelled my anxiety Mm -hmm. actually to watch scary things I, I definitely understand that as somebody that's also very socially anxious and a bit of a neurodivergent ADHD mess, as I like to call myself lovingly. Um, I feel like a lot of us relate to the freaks and the monsters of horror because we've always felt ostracized, especially as kids as well. And you mentioned there that you didn't have many friends. I can also relate to that. You know, I moved around a lot as a kid as well. I grew up kind of like all over the world. So I didn't really get a chance to connect with other people. And also being neurodivergent, it's hard to connect with other people. So, you know, looking at likes of Frankenstein or Dracula and, you know, they're getting, these monsters getting chased with a pitchfork. So like, oh, that's what it feels like to be 
like in the school classroom or at lunch at the tables. So yeah, it's it's definitely very relatable. You mentioned that you're a playwright and a screenwriter. So what type of um, content do you write? Is that horror or is it something like completely different from that genre? Yeah, um, so I like to say, I truly believe that there's horror in everything and that everything mm -hmm. is horror adjacent if you dig deep enough. Um, when it comes to my own work, um, common themes, there's a lot of uh, dark coming of age. There's a lot of body horror. I mean, because when you're coming of age, that's when your body starts doing Very true. things. Um, uh, it's always dark comedy. I, I mean, horrors, I, I'm in awe of my favorite filmmakers because I feel like to create that sense of horror is so hard. Um, but I try to try to emulate creepiness whenever I can. Uh, I like moody horror. Moody so, horror. Yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah. true. I feel like um, and I don't know if you'll agree, but there's, you know, there's a lot of people that will try and gatekeep what isn't isn't horror. People assume that horror has to be gory or jump scares. And that's not true because life is a horror in itself, you know? Yeah, when Parasite won uh, Best Picture, I was like, cool, horror movie won. Um, <laughs> you know, I would argue against that, but. So for the Spooky Sleepover, as mentioned, we're talking about self-care comfort movies. So you've chosen Poltergeist. So why is Poltergeist a comfort horror movie for you? I've asked myself that a lot. I think, um, I mean, I did see it fairly young. I think that my dad, it was another one of my dad's recommendations. The reason I love this movie so much, it's actually probably my favorite horror movie and one of my favorite movies of all time um is because even though there's a lot of really terrifying stuff going on the way it is shot the way it is acted like even the score there's something like very nostalgic it has a lot of heart i think i love um i love watching the opening i love the opening scene where like you're introduced to like all the kids and, and the dog and even you know tangina i love the cheesy I mean, I call them cheesy. I think they're amazing, but I think there are such great, like, theatrical monologues in it. And also, I think like any film that it literally it kind of essentially takes place in the living room, which is kind of like where you just kind of want to like snuggle up and gather in front of the TV. And of course, like in this movie, it's like that is like the most dangerous place to be. <laughs> um, yeah, it's one that I love to return to, it, even if it's only the score. The score is so tricky. Like to me, it it feels very similar to The Goonies, except mm -hmm. like Goonies is a nostalgic, I think, fun movie to watch. I think Poltergeist has a lot <laughs> in common, um, except it is, uh, the stakes are a lot higher and it's mm -hmm. terrifying and children are like actually in peril. Yeah, it just feels good to watch Poltergeist. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely I definitely get that. I only watched Poltergeist very recently for a different podcast episode, actually. And I really, I kick myself because I wish I'd watched it sooner because I absolutely loved it. And I'm not, I'm not usually the type of person that gravitates towards like supernatural, paranormal kind of ghost horror. It's not really my thing, but it is got heart to it. Like I love the family unit. The parents have a lot of love between each other, which is so rare to see just media in general the only other couple I can think of is like Morticia and Gomez um yeah. and that's the go-to but the parents in this should also get athletes because I think they're just really sweet together yeah 
I think there's a lot of movies where, you know, it's like family in peril, children in peril. Like I think of even like Insidious Mm -hmm. and it's like, I don't know, you just don't really, I feel like they, they fly through the actual stuff with the family. So it's kind of just like, all right, your kid's in danger, cool. Like we get it. But, but this movie, I really, I feel, I feel like I truly feel the stress. And it's also like why I'm like, oh my God, have three children is so many. Oh my God, <laughs> all safe. And that's like part of the suspense. Is everyone okay? Like, <laughs> So the other movie that we have for the spooky sleepover is my choice. So my comfort movie is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I chose this for a few reasons. One of them just being a gay person like this is such an iconic film Tim Curry is really iconic in this and I also love the musical as well like me me and Lindsay actually went to go see it very recently in March and I dressed up as Magenta she dressed up as Frankenfurter but considering this movie is the 70s you know we have a bisexual polyamorous Frankenfurter you know, that's quite trailblazing. And I feel like the queer community still gravitates towards this film a lot, even now. It's a classic for a reason. And I love musicals as well. The score, the aesthetic, it, it just, it brings me comfort. Does this film bring you comfort as well? It does. Um, I also love musical theater. I saw this movie, uh, I was probably like nine or 10. Most of it went over my head except for the music. But, um, you know, I also come from a theater background. I love musicals. And it was funny watching the movie because um, I became pretty obsessed with the, the recording of like the last revival that they did on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Like I listened to that all the time. And so like watching it, I mean, it's the same score, but like getting to return to the movie um, was, I love those songs so much. I would love to see it on stage. I've never seen it um, performed. It is really good, especially because like there's so much audience participation as well, which is you don't get that in the theater all the time. So it's 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 really fun. It's really fun. And so with that, we are going to be starting off with Poltergeist. The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. You are so unlucky. With their three children. (laughs) And something more. kind of disturbances. Focus is clear. Oh, 
Christ. It knows what scares you. The IMPD plot for Poltergeist is as follows. As always, IMPD gives great in-depth synopsis. Family's mm -hmm. home is haunted by a host of demonic ghosts. End quote. <laughs> That's what it says on the tin. This film was released in 1982. It was directed by Toby Hopper, whose other work includes The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2. Um, it was written by Steven Spielberg, Michael Grace and Mark Victor. It stars Joe Beth Williams, Heather O'Rourke and Craig T. Nelson. Now, Jan, I know you're a big fan of this film and you said you have trivia galore. So I'm excited as we go through the plot to hear all the different facts that you might want to share. Yeah, this movie is, I mean, it's a pretty loaded film to talk about because um, in addition to just like kind of fun trivia, there's a lot of tragedy that surrounds not yes. only this film, but also the, the sequel, which I also love. <laughs> um, yeah, it mirrors some of the stuff going on in the movies in a very eerie way. Um, some horror fans might know that um, it's, some people think the movie was cursed. It's a whole thing. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's kind of meta when you, when you think about it. That's very true. There is a lot of tragedy around this. And we will, we will talk about that as well. I haven't actually watched the sequel or the third one, but and I was going to ask you if I should, but that's kind of, you've kind of already answered the question there. <laughs> There's probably some people that would be like, don't bother. I, I mean, and the third one is like the most out there. Um, but Heather O'Rourke, who plays a little girl, Carol Ann, um, she is in all three of them. I just, I've always, I love the story. You got a lot of the same characters and the same actors throughout. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it just dives even deeper into um, the story. So I love it. So I'd say do what your heart wants. <laughs> but on that note, we will get into the plot. So we start off with Stephen and Diane Freeling. They live a quiet life in a Californian suburb. Stephen's a real estate agent selling for the development where they live with their children Dana, Robbie, Carol Ann and the family dog E-Buzz. Now I love this first step scene with dogs like going around and you get to meet all the family it's so cute. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a thought while watching this again is this is one of the best dog actors right? <laughs> like he's got he I mean he's essential to the plot he's got some great stuff in there and I love how they they use him to introduce the whole family I don't know if you're the same as me because I mean I'm uh we have both have fur children as we were speaking yeah. off recording but um anytime I see an animal in uh, a horror film especially cats or dogs I always get so much anxiety what's going to happen so I'm like don't kill the cat don't kill the dog please yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a, a sore point I have a thing now and it's probably because of watching this movie if my dog ever starts like whining or barking at something and I can't find the cause I'm always like okay he's there's a ghost very relatable <laughs> very well trained very uh very respectable performance <laughs> so um after we have this like really nice introduction scene where we're introduced to the family and the characters um one night after everyone's asleep the living room television's still on and the station signs off for the night and goes static the youngest daughter out of the clan, Carol Ann, hears like faint whispering from the TV static. So this is the start of like the iconic scene. When you think of Poltergeist, you think of Carol Ann in front of that static TV. And just visually, I think this is a great shot. And it's like, 
kids in horror are just so terrifying I, I'm not a fan of kids personally anyway so just like yeah when <laughs> <laughs> I have my own I should say but um there's something I don't know I mean the thing is like I I there's so many child children in horror movies and this girl in this movie but like as she's walking down the steps she's truly she's so tiny she's like so small and like very angelic you know I mean she looks just you know when she starts talking the thing that creep I find so creepy about this is she starts like answering and like one word responses and it's like yes what are they what are they asking her because they like she says like five I don't know so like I was like they're asking her how old she is or I was like are they saying like are your parents there just the not knowing not being able to hear that conversation oh I think it's so creepy <laughs> it is and you're right she's so like small and fragile and it, it, she just looks so tiny next to this tv and it's not even a big tv I mean it's this what is it the 80s the 70s it ain't a big tv so yeah, it, yeah she, the contrast is mm-hmm. a lot so the next week it all seems normal it's a Sunday afternoon Stephen and his friends are glued to a football game I quite like this is this not a bit where they have like a back and forth with the neighbors and stuff like that with the tv it's like the other families watching like Mr Rogers and it's crazy because I mean I'm I'm 89 like I'm late 80s so you know I was around when there were VCRs but like this thing of like you know having to like share channels um I mean good god now it's like period piece stuff (laughs) but yeah that's why like you know this movie opens up and like tonally it is so different than what it turns out to be like I feel like it kind of tricks you because at the beginning you're like okay this is a horror but it's like you know it's like easy horror it's like maybe like g-rated pg that definitely you are um given a false sense of security and I quite like that with a horror film I like to be given that little bit of comfort and then it's like ripped from underneath you um I'm a 90s kid but like when I see this scene I always think about like the internet at the time and you'd have to share like internet in your household and take ages like Gen Z if anyone's Gen Z listening yous are so lucky you don't know what it was like for us So um, as they're like Stephen's watching like this football game with his friends, Robbie decides to climb the tree closest to his bedroom, which he finds gruesome because part of it appears to be a shape of a head. He decides to conquer his fear by climbing it. He's like, you know what? I'm going to face my fear. I'm going to climb this tree. Whilst Diane's cleaning the room that Robbie and Caroline share, she finds Caroline's pet canary dead. She tries to flush it, but she's caught by Caroline and forced to give it a proper burial. This is like that that's so sweet actually <laughs> oh man I always I always think about that I think it's Twizzler she had she's like chewing on a Twizzler and she's like yeah. it's such a thing a child would think and say like oh the bird gets hungry let me like let's put a let's put some candy in there for him yeah but she, she asked for a goldfish after she's like okay it's now time for a new pet <laughs> like you know I mean let's get all like nerdy and going to psychology but like that's probably her first um understanding of death and mortality that's true um, I mean like clearly she's like and then she's like okay moving on um you know to think about that and then the kid is like the other Robbie is like can we like dig it up and see the bones like yeah. <laughs> that was me as a kid I was just too curious for my own good <laughs> um so after Caroline overfeeds her two fish <laughs> she's not great with animals bless bless this little girl um 
and then the kids are tucked into bed Robbie seems concerned because there's a storm like battering at their bedroom window and in the master bedroom Diane and Stephen um, are unwinding they're having a conversation while Stephen reads and Diane seems like pretty concerned about Carol Ann and apparently she's a chronic sleepwalker and as they're building a pool Diane worries if her daughter might accidentally wander outside and go into the pool but Stephen assures her with his expertise from his diving days things will be fine I actually used to sleepwalk a little bit as a kid um don't anymore though that's so would you like wake up in strange places I used to wake up in the kitchen but another thing that I used to do as a kid was just like fall out of bed and fall asleep on the floor and I'd still be sleeping I'd be on the floor like I'm a really heavy sleeper like World War Three could be going on and I wouldn't know here we get a scene that I really quite like so in the children's bedroom Robbie can't sleep obviously there's a storm stares out the window with the fear of the tree and the thunderstorm and his attention turns to his most intense childhood scare um Carol Ann's stuffed clown jester doll now I hate clowns with a passion and this jester doll is creepy as fuck I don't know if you agree <laughs> yeah um clowns I I don't mind clowns it's funny because we're talking about Tim Curry later but like it yeah. I can I can handle that um I don't know I think though if you're like a little kid and it's like lightning and thundering and that's all you can see I would probably be freaked out too it's an interesting juxtaposition I mean for me like thunderstorms are really relaxing like in in my bedroom I've got slanted windows so if I can hear the rain falling down and it rains all the time in Scotland that's like relaxing to me so it's like that juxtaposition this creepy doll but then the nice rain so after this we have the very very creepy doll um Bobby closes his eyes and it's so cute. He's moving towards it. He takes a jacket and he covers it up so he can go to sleep. That's something I would do. It's like, out of sight, out of mind. So Stephen um, and Diana are in bed and Robbie interrupts them about the storm. Um, Stephen piggybacks him back to bed. Stephen seems like a really attentive father, which is really nice to see. Like, he actually really is quite doted to his kids, which, as we were mentioning kind of before, you don't really see that necessarily in horror. When it comes to parents, it's usually, like conflicts or like mummy issues and daddy issues I mean look at Alfred Hitchcock's discography that's all filmography even that's all mummy issues but it's nice to see a father that really cares about his kids I love that detail and I mean the way the way that he calms Robbie's fears about the storm to this day I don't know like I guess we'll like talk about it in a second I don't know if this is true what he tells him but I still think of this every time it's thundering and lightning um about like it meaning like you can count between the thunder and the lightning and that tells you how close it is yeah. I have no idea if like it just occurred to me watching it I was like out oh, is that bullshit is that actually a thing or is, is, it, is he just trying to like get his kid to sleep but I always think of this scene well I was told that as a kid as well because um when I was growing up I lived in Singapore for a little while and we used to have really really bad thunderstorms and my mom used to tell me that but I'm like that actually makes my anxiety worse because I'll continuously count for fear <laughs> all right well that solves that I guess yes yeah. <laughs> um so after this uh, yeah as we mentioned so he comforts Robbie and then Stephen leaves and Caroline to, to count and then hoping they'll fall asleep when they're counting and after catching Dana on the phone after hours Stephen's thinks everything's all right for the night so he goes to bed children count longer lapses between lightning and thunder but then the lightning suddenly hits right outside 
um, and they're next seen sleeping soundly between their parents. That night is the family minus Dana sleep in the master bedroom. The television goes off again. And just as before Caroline wakes up to the television, television static, this time she touches the screen out of curiosity and we get this like skeleton hand that comes out. So this is the kind of first like special effect we have. We have this and then we have the tree later on at the, win at the window. What are your thoughts on the special effects in this film? Because I mean, they are dated, but there is like a nostalgia to them and I still love the look of them. Oh yeah, I I love the special effects in this. I think for the time, it's pretty incredible what they managed to do. There's not a whole lot of them used, but like when they are, it's also, it's so unexpected. Um, and also like the other great thing I love about this movie is the score. And mm -hmm. as this hand is coming out and kind of like slithering around, there's this music that's like, it's almost playful. So like, you know, you're, you're still like, is this like a playful presence? Is this dangerous? It's like, we don't really know yet what's going on. Um, although like if that is happening, I should probably be a little freaked out. <laughs> no, I, I'm in total agreement with you there because the, the, there isn't too many special effects. I feel like if they overused it, you, the novelty would wear off. I feel like there is a fine balance with it. And they did do, I think they did quite a lot of phys physical stuff as well, didn't they? Like physical effects and like, um, you can kind of, you can definitely yeah. see that as well. The touch has somehow made it possible for the form to now freely roam the physical realm because Caroline's touched this hand, it can kind of come out, um, it accelerates into the wall above the bed at like lightning speed and causes an earthquake-like movement in the house. The beans are now released, and Caroline, in the creepiest little voice, says, They're here. <laughs> so good. So, in the master bedroom, the dog sees enthralled. There's like a hole above the master bedroom with the spirit from the spirit's arrival from the night before. Brings his favorite toy as an offering to play. Dogs are so wholesome. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, Diane later shocked to see the kitchen chairs have been like stacked upon themselves thinking oh what's happened here and she starts to realize there's something oopy spooky going on in this house and she's like fascinated by it and I love some of these scenes that come up like when they're on the floor and they're flying about the place it's so funny. Stephen pulls into the driveway and she rushes him inside to show him like what's happened in the kitchen like oh my god have you seen what's happened so they use like masking tape as like a makeshift runway to mark the path that the chairs move right along from one side of the room to the other and then she lets Caroline slide to be caught by Stephen and it's like it, it kind of seems a bit like a game they don't seem too scared yeah. by it yeah well because it it's so innocent at first everything we've mm. seen about it's like playful and I think like with um with poltergeist like or even like spirits goes not to go too much into it but I have had like you know little tiny objects go missing and then they're over here and I'm like are you because I'm convinced it's a ghost and I'm like are you are you just like is this malevolent are you just trying to fuck with me <laughs> but, like yeah it's like they're they're not at the point where they're like I think we should start like I think this is kind of scary like they're they're just like um you know they're just like getting a kick out of it and um, I don't know if you're into like hearing like a random piece of trivia about this scene. Yeah. Um, Go for it. I, I didn't even realize this until watching it. But if um, right like after Steve comes home, they show it to him and he's like clearly freaked out. But then in the next scene, they've gone next door just to be like, hey, just wondering, has like anything weird been going on? 
at your house. Um, so if you notice that there is, um, what do you call it? Like the film, the film strip clear. I don't know like the word for it, but there's, there's like, like the film reel thing. Yeah, like there it's, it's so, you can barely see it, but it is kind of like an abrupt cut to the scene. Um, that's a little odd if you watch it. Apparently, um, what was taken out was a bit of an extended scene where like Steve and Diane are kind of arguing about what this is and Carol Ann goes to like slide on the thing by herself and apparently it goes so fast that she like smashes into the wall and she's got a helmet she's got a helmet on thankfully but it's something like the helmet like dents the wall it goes so fast and like you know they're and she's fine she's wearing a helmet but apparently that was a bit that got cut out and that's why there's like a really kind of strange like the scene doesn't really like naturally and all of a sudden you just see them next door um, ringing their neighbor's doorbell. Um, fun random facts. <laughs> I wonder why they took that out at first. I, I don't know if it's because, I mean, this film isn't really violent. I mean, there's not really that much gore. There is like the, the peeling kind of scene, but I mean, there's not lots, of, there's not really blood or anything like that. So I don't know if they maybe thought it was a bit too much for the start of it or. Yeah, there's um like there, I saw like, course I'm going on like reddit and there's people that like <laughs> there's a version where it exists but I don't know maybe you can find an explanation somewhere but uh I don't know maybe it's like a little like too intense and scary um because then like you know later is when we're really seeing that this whatever this is is dangerous yeah that's true um so shortly after this we have a second storm and this is when we get another special effect. So the tree comes to life and grabs Robbie through his bedroom window. I love this because like if I slept next to a tree, I don't know, trees can be quite creepy. I mean, because I live in Scotland, like, I mean, I live in a city, but like I live near like villages and mountains and stuff like that, like 15 minutes away. And it's so beautiful, but at night, like forests are so scary. I don't know, just this reminds me of something from like Creep Show or like a Clive Barker cover of a book or something. Do you like this effect? Um, I I love this scene and actually my childhood bedroom, I I do. It's still there. Um, I mean my parents still live there. There's a tree right outside my window. And whenever there is a storm, I feel like I kind of and I mean, you know, there have been like tornadoes that have blown through I have there have been times where I've slept in my bed and I have this this sort of like emergency exit plan in my head where I'm like okay if the storm makes the tree go through the window I'm gonna like you know like stop drop and roll out of bed the other way so it doesn't like grab me crush me (laughs) Um, yeah that scene forever just like I mean, it's true now I think about that. I also live in a city now and we've had some crazy storms like these gargantuan trees have gone down and my, our floor, like we're on the top floor, we're just high enough that there's no danger of a tree um, coming through. But like, I have seen it happen and it's it's kind of like, you know, it's such a scary, the friggin' tree, just like going through your house I don't know. I just like this scene. It's so scary. And I think it's like for the time and for like the feel of the movie, the level of danger and kind of violence is really intense. Like he's bleeding. Mm-hmm. Not 
always disturbed me that like he comes out and he's like I don't know if the, the tree is like trying to eat him or like <laughs> but he comes out and um he's got blood on his face and I remember being like oh my god like I've never I don't think I'd ever seen like actually showing like a child being harmed like that and that always freaked me out well even now like the, you know there's certain taboos in horror if you will and it's always to do with like animals and kids really isn't it we yeah. don't like to see kids and animals getting hurt and like even in 2022 it's very much a a shock yeah. to see it isn't it but yeah I would be I'm, I'm top floor as well but um yeah the thought of a tree coming in my window is really scary because you can't prepare for it so it's very much a real life fear as well <laughs> Um, after we have the tree coming through, this is actually basically a distraction by the ghost to get Caroline's parents to leave her unattended. It's their sneaky little plan. So while Diane and Stephen are rescuing Robbie, um, the tree is consumed by a sudden tornado that suspectedly vanishes as quickly as it appears. Caroline is then sucked through a portal in her closet. And after a thorough search of the house, the Freelings um, realize that she's been taken. And they begin to hear her communicating through the television set. I really, I really love this like telecommunication and the portal scenes really fun as well. This is like this whole sequence between the tree, <laughs> they run outside, and then like they they get scared that maybe Caroline's in the swimming pool. Like all the stuff with like multiple children and the dog of like having to make sure everyone's okay. This like it's not even scary it just this stresses me out it makes my anxiety go it's like when you have like multiple like creatures or like small people that you need to like have them all and like make sure they're safe and there's like multiple things going on with all their children at the same time um except for Dana like Dana is just like eating celery in the background <laughs> living her best life <laughs> she like yeah as far as I can tell she's like supposed to be on a diet or something because like you just see her kind of like eating vegetables and like she doesn't really get a whole lot else to do <laughs> um but yeah like it, it seems to be well it seems to be like it gravitates towards children mm -hmm. uh, like and Dana is probably like 16 yes probably maybe a bit too old yeah these kids are both like under like Robbie's probably like seven or six and Caroline's five I think yeah um so after this we have a group of parapsychologists from UC Irving so we have Dr Martha Lesh Dr Ryan Mitchell and Dr Martin Casey so they come to the Freeling house to investigate Stephen gives them the rundown of basically what's happened and asks them to see the entry point of the incident which is the children's bedroom as Stephen unlocks the door, Ryan proudly boasts that he has a video of a child's toy matchbox vehicle taking seven hours to roll across the floor and how like incredible it is on a time lapse. Stephen nods. He's not arse. He's not interested. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't really give a shit. You're here to help me with my kids. Um, and he opens the door to absolute chaos. The ghosts are not amused with their first time on display. One of the beds is spinning while Caroline's clown doll is laughing. Oh, I hate this so much. <laughs> Can I not? This will probably upset you more, but one of the, <laughs> I know, you know what? I'll I'll save it. It's involving the clown. It doesn't happen until later. But yeah, it's this goat, these poltergeists, they have a sense of humor. I think they like, do. 
you see like a lamp like uh build itself and then light yeah. bulb goes on it's also the, the coolest special effects i think it's such a cool scene i feel like because um we watched like relatively recently for one of our episodes um horror movies written by women and we had the 90s classic casper i feel like the the trio of ghosts and casper are kind of inspired by poltergeist a little bit like the humor and the fun of it oh yeah oh yeah i need to rewatch that one it's honestly such a i say classic it's 90s but it, it is a classic really um yeah i love that film it was a big part of my childhood um, so they determine the freelings are experiencing a poltergeist rather than a true haunting. Poltergeists are known to center themselves around an individual rather than a location and for chaotic activity opposed to, you know, what we traditionally think of a ghost roaming the halls, looking to 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 go to the end, you know, their lost souls. Um, Dr. Lesh explains that the spirits have not moved on to the light after death, but are stuck in between dimensions. They've taken Carol Ann because as an innocent five-year-old, her life force is as bright as them as the light, and they believe that she is their salvation. Now, Dr. Lesh is also a little bit of an icon. What do you think of all of our um, parapsychologists? I really like them as a group. Yeah, I love these characters so much, especially Dr. Lesh, because she just comes in like this very warm and maternal mm -hmm. presence. She, like, she very easily kind of becomes adopted by the family, all three of them do. Um, I also love that like, they are clearly, they've clearly not seen anything like this before. Like when they're talking later, like they're, they're literally shaking, which is scary because it's like, if the parapsychologists are scared, like they've never dealt with something like this before. Like, you don't want to hear that from the people that you've like <laughs> yeah. hired to like, you know, get rid of goat poltergeist or get your kid back. It's like, yeah, just that little like her like holding the tea and her hands are trembling. Like, oh, this is this is bad. And like, <laughs> yeah. we thought if the experts are scared, then you oh, should be shitting yourself. <laughs> um, so in the living room, as it starts to get dark, Diane turns to the channel that she can hear Caroline's voice can transmit best. And after a few unsuccessful tries, she coaxes Caroline to say hello to her father. Diane knows that Caroline's naive about what's happening and attempts to get any clues from the girl using this very like mother, as you said, like a very like soft motherly kind of demeanor. The mood changes in the room as Caroline mentions that she's um, afraid of a light. So Diane believes it's a portal home um, and informs her it's dangerous and the way permanently to the other side. So Marty, strangely unconvinced after all he's seen investigates television and thinks there may be a chance that a CB radio transmission and a hoax while Dr. Lesh refused such an idea. So there's a little bit of like conflict going on. After Marty leaves for upstairs, there's a flash of white flames that appear from the ceiling above the living room, dropping watches and jewelry covered in dust. Steven's on top, wanting, I mean, all they're caring about is wanting to get their kid back. And he's getting more and more disgusted with the behavior of the spirits. Caroline speaks and tells them there's someone close by her and asks if it's her mom. Stephen replies, no, Caroline screams in a state of panic, and at this point is obviously running. The sound of something unearthly is chasing her. There's panic from both sides, and Caroline being in the world between the living and the dead 
only escape downstairs is the invisible spirit form. So there's a lot of anxiety and stuff going on around here. Diana ends up breaking in tears and, you know, she's really sad because she realizes Caroline's soul's passed through hers as well. This is a really heartbreaking scene. You really feel for the mother as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of this it just breaks your heart. And that's something that I feel like I love a horror. This is a horror movie that it, I my eyes well up. And I actually love when horror does it. I love a horror movie that yeah. makes me cry. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's cathartic. Like there's, I, my, my thing is like, I love horror movies that make me cry and I love video games that make me cry. I like, I like sad things. <laughs> I mean, this is my opinion. I think other people think like, this is the cheesiest movie with the cheesiest acting. I think that the performances in this film, like particularly the women mm -hmm. are, incredible and like that moment when um diane you see like she feels her daughter's um spirit essence kind of go oh my god i don't um i don't know i think there's like academy award um deserving performances in here like particularly of the mom it's a really beautiful scene it's very emotional you really feel for her yeah um, and it's scary as hell too because mm -hmm. because we can't we don't see any of this we can only like assume what is going on um and that I also love that in horror movies I love particularly in this one you like you really never see it's just like what you can imagine and what you're told is happening is like you know it just makes your imagination run wild definitely um so I'm going to skip ahead a little bit so um after most of the group, and this is later in the night, most of the group decide to go to sleep. I don't know how they can sleep amongst all this chaos, but you know what? Fair play. They're probably tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Marty informs Ryan that he's going to forage for something to eat. Finds a steak. Random. Um, moments later, it moves and then bursts open from the inside to shreds. Um, a chicken leg that Marty was eating falls from his mouth and puts him into shock. There's like maggots on the floor. Anytime there's like maggots in horror films, oh, yeah, it just, yeah. it, it makes me not feel great. But this scene that's coming up is like another like special effects scene. So he goes to yeah. the bathroom, he's sick, he splashes water on his face. Um, but for no known reason, he decides to like claw at his face. Like he sees a bloody gouge and then he's tearing at it to the bone. But he's he's hallucinating. What do you think of this scene? Because like, I mean, the special effects in this are a little bit dated, but I still do really like it because like the thought of clawing your face is just so violent. Yeah, I think like regardless of what time period it is, I think these special effects are really powerful. I mean, just that steak alone is so disgusting. I'm not. I don't generally get like sick to my stomach. This scene. This scene almost makes me sick to my stomach. Um, and I mean, this is so random, but I found out recently from my friend who's never actually watched this movie. She was like, oh yeah, I know that guy, the guy that plays Marty. I think it was his oh, first really? movie. I don't know if he's still acting, but apparently um, Steven Spielberg, I think it's the hands you see pulling at the face. They're actually Steven Spielberg's hands. Oh. So what was used effects I don't know I think like I yeah I still that scene affects me I don't easily get um like grossed out or disturbed by body horror and this still like it's just especially because he clearly is out of it and doesn't realize what he's doing 
self-inflicted pain always just kind of gives me more of the creeps because it's like you have control over that and you're doing it to yourself it's just yeah it's it's unnatural you know it's not our instincts to protect ourselves not to hurt ourselves to see it it's just like oh yeah it's so odd too it's the most violent scene I think Mm -hmm. movie um this kind of like gross out ever really happens again like clearly the the poltergeists are like trying to fuck with this guy um and it works because you know he's just like I'm done (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so interesting I'm always like oh why'd they pick out Marty maybe because like they sensed he was like sense something about him but um uh yeah I just think it's gross and that that'll like turn you into a vegetarian (laughs) (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) so nasty um so after this we move on to to seeing Brian he's like monitoring the equipment for any changes in the house um he has an EKG like meter um and then we see light and mist start to appear Marty's still in like a terrified state at this point he doesn't want to go to the living room um, and we see this like very angelic apparition uh, surrounded by bright orbs descend down the stairs. This is really beautiful, actually. I really like this effect. And Ryan is in like absolute wonder. The research I did, it refers to it as the glowing woman. Um, but also Dr. Lesh comments that these beings are like very alone. Like she says, so lonely, so alone. Um and what do you think of this? Because it's, it's kind of, it's ethereal, actually. That's the word that kind of comes to mind for me. No, it is like, uh, I just, I think there's so many layers of this film, but it is really sad because um, like, you know, they are, I don't know. Like I, you hear this, is su- it's such a trope in horror movies. Like, oh, it's like a wandering soul, like needs revenge or like doesn't, they don't know they're dead. But this movie it's so effective where like, I mean, I empathize with them. There's something about, and the fact that you can kind of add, you can kind of see them walking, which also was terrifying. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's basically like a whole like group of folks just like wandering through your home. Like, yeah, man, it's the script, it's the acting. I love uh, Dr. Lesh, I'm forgetting her name off the top of my head. Um, oh, um, I'm gonna have a look because she's quite Beatrice iconic. Beatrice Strait. You know, this could. I feel like I don't know. I I will stand by this movie. I've heard people be like, "This is like it's kind of like a lifetime movie." I'm like, no, these are there's some powerful monologues that <laughs> come from uh, just Doctor Doctor Lesh. It is. There's a lot of like philosophical questions that this film brings up as well. It makes you think afterwards about like meaning of yeah. family, the meaning of life after death all these different things um so after these series of paranormal episodes Robbie and Dana are sent away for their safety Dr Lesh informs Diane that she's leaving Ryan with the family for support and that Marty won't be returning she has like a really sweet scene with Diane a sweet scene with Diane where she embraces her and tells her she'll be back and with help this is also where we see Stephen's boss, Lewis. Um, he's talking to him about a promotion, about a new project that'll involve selling lots of like newly acquired hilltop land that currently houses a cemetery. When Stephen balks at the idea of relocating the graveyard, his boss shrugs it off. And there, that's quite a comment on real estate as it is today. You know, it's how many times have we seen um like properties that have been built on like ancient burial grounds and it's very disrespectful of various different cultures and a lot we could discuss there about like capitalism and greed and corporate America. 
Yeah, well, there's such like, I mean, this movie is like, for the time, it really is like, I think this family, you would look at this family, you think this is the American dream. I mean, they've even got like, my God, like, what's it, the national anthem playing at the top and like, yeah. And it's like the idyllic suburban white picket fence. And yet, like, you know, we're slowly learning, like, this is built upon it's built, you know, like, of course, it's like, how do you get there? It's you're taking something from another person. And yeah, this whole community we're realizing is kind of is built around that. So it's this really false security. Yeah, again, just all the multi-layers of this. Yeah. All the layers, like an onion, kind of skipping ahead a little bit. The group discovered that the entrance to the other dimension is through, they knew it was through the children's bedroom, but they realized at this point it's the closet. Oh, we have a pebbles making an appearance. Oh. Um, they send Diane to rescue Caroline. She ties a rope um, that they manage to thread through both portals. Um, and as they coax the agonized spirits away from Caroline and instead to the light, Steve starts to panic and attempts to pull Diane back to him. Also, there's a scene before this, I think, where they have like a kiss and a cuddle as well. They're like, you know, being very sweet as a couple, like both the parents before they do they do this scene, which is it's really nice. It's really nice to see. This um after is this before Tangina comes in or after? I think it's before. I might be remembering that wrong, but I rem I remember them having, I think they had like that scene beforehand where it's like, you know, Diane, please be safe because she's obviously risking herself to sacrifice her child. Um, so yeah, you're right. So Chanjin coaxes the spirits. Steve panics. He attempts to pull Diane back to him, causing the enraged beast, which is like the big, the big bad spirit, um, to manifest with the portal in front of him as a giant roaring skeletal face. Now this effect is so yeah. good. I I I was looking at screenshots of this earlier. Um, I think this is, yeah, this is probably my favorite special effect in the movie, and it is like probably our last one we see. Is this your favorite one, or do you have a different one? Um, there's actually there's one coming up that I think is is maybe in fact the last effect we see that um I really love, but this like. Yeah, the um, also just like the mechanics of this scene to this day. <laughs> I don't totally understand the like, don't call into the light. Yes, run to the light. <laughs> and like, you know, Tangina that comes in and then starts talking. We might be like slightly out of order, but she starts telling them light. Um, I couldn't figure this out online. Um, like, you know, what Tangina, who is the um, like the medium, not the medium, I don't know what you would call her. Parapsychologist, uh, I think, something like uh, that. I don't quite understand the side agenda she has if she's trying to help these people on the other side. Um, and whatever it does, like Steve freaks out and they like pull them in, uh, they pull them back too soon. Um, forgive me if I'm jumping like ahead. No, not at all. But yeah, it's funny. Like as much as I love this movie, there's still like a significant chunk at the end where I'm like, I don't really understand how we got here. And maybe maybe it's because it truly doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> that's also a possibility. Yeah, to go back to what you were originally saying, that, um, you know, that moment they have, and then she turns, she says, don't let go. <laughs> yeah, because you don't know what she's like walking into. Is this like hell? Is it angelic? In 
how do you like how big is it like how how far do you have to go how much rope do you need to like find a child because you don't see what Diane sees you don't see what Carol Ann sees so it's purely up to the audience's imagination of how big it is what it looks like like we don't know and it's never really explained from their point point of view what it yeah. looks like yeah I mean they don't give her many instructions they're just like no. tie this rope around your waist find her but you know I it does like I always felt it moved like you know you really see that maternal instinct kick in because she's not like she's not really thinking about that like she actually says like Stephen was going to go in originally um and uh she says well who's gonna who's gonna hold the rope like I'm gonna yeah it's like I need my daughter is in danger I need to save her um she has no idea what she's walking into I mean I don't know if I'd be that brave I just been like <laughs> two kids now <laughs> a two is fine <laughs> we have two children and we're moving so sorry um well Diane does actually manage to retrieve Caroline and they emerge to the living room ceiling pull to the floor um and Tangina announces this house is clean however the spirits um while the spirits have moved on to the afterlife peacefully, the beast has not. Once revenge after losing the life force of both the ghosts and Caroline, um, the beast finally reveals its appearance. So I think this is the bit where you were mentioning. So it's like a ghostly skull with four praying mantis-like legs. Yes. Um, yes, yeah, so this is your favorite scene and this is your favorite special yeah. effect. You know, like many horror movies, there's that false sense of, again, that false sense of security, like all is well, They're, they are moving. You know one of the things this is where like the clown comes in so like the clown actually attacks robbie um the toy it starts choking him apparently when they were filming this there was something like malfunctioned and the kid was actually being choked oh my god terrifying um but yeah there's all this chaos going on inside of the room and even carolan is like oh no like you know it's like it's about to happen again yeah, Diane. I mean, it's so this scene is this whole sequence. Um, it's so disorienting because like she can't like the room is like just down the hallway. It makes the hallway expand. It makes it so like like she can't like walk properly. And then when she finally gets to the door, this like like you said, this like praying mantis with a skull on it comes out, and like the this force of it causes her to like fall backwards down the stairs like it is it's so great she ends up in the pool somehow like yeah. she's, she's trying to just which also p.s this pool um it's rumored again like you know these are rumors there's so much other stuff you could read about the stuff in this movie but um she falls into the pool i don't remember how she gets outside but um there are skeletons in the pool with her mm-hmm. um and I don't know if it's actually fact or not, but um, I think that they may have in fact used actual skeletons, which like some people you will always hear like, you know, set something off, which um, set up some like really some sad stuff that happened um, behind the scenes of this movie. Uh, But yeah, all of that just to like open the door um, and save her two kids. like ungodly stressful this like is also these sequences stress me out 
so much. <laughs> this, the set design for this is also brilliant as well. Like I just love the set design of the house in these scenes and it's so fast paced and stressful. So much happens in like three minutes. Right, it's only like three minutes. It feels like, it feels like an hour. This is just like the last like 20 minutes of the movie. It does. I feel like the whole pacing for Poltergeist is really good because like we have like the false sense of security at the start, but it's not like slow. I feel like, you know, we have enough like um, special effects and creepy scenes where it doesn't feel like, you know, you're getting bored. So after we have all this massive fiasco uh, with Cole and that prey mantis like creature, um, Stephen returns home to this absolute fucking chaos and realizes that Teg relocated the cemetery under the subdivision. He's done it on the cheap and only moved the headstones. Um, so his boss appears soon after, joining the Freelings, and like the neighbors are in horror about everything that's happened at the Freelings' house. Stephen, rightly so, is absolutely enraged and um, confronts him about the fact about leaving the bodies in unmarked graves and building the house on top of them. You know, they've desecrated their burial grounds. And the feelings drive away in terror and then the house like implodes into another dimension to the astonishment of the on onlookers and it's just like karma's being served that's what you know if you're disrespecting ghosts if you're disrespecting the dead that's what's gonna happen um but the film doesn't end there we have the family fleeing the town they check into like a holiday inn or something for the night um <laughs> taking no chances stephen puts the tv in on the outside of the balcony and i i love like the anxiety of it all um, yeah. but that's our ending what do you think of like that ending oh my god it's like it's such a fast and stressful ending and like these people I mean I think of it like these people have just they have lost every that's also why I'm like it's a family film they have lost <laughs> everything except each other like they're all reunited like the daughter had gone to stay with friends because she was just like nah I'm not like staying around for this so the whole family's back together the dog is miraculously okay. Like they literally only have like their filthy pajamas. That, and, um, you know, I really think I'm just like, where, I don't know, that that to me, that kind of like that, like the refuge of this holiday in and how traumatized everyone in this family. And I had another thought where like, I never noticed this before, but when they're driving to the inn um, and Diane's holding Carol Ann, um, and, she, and Caroline is crying mm -hmm. a little bit. And I was also like, this kid is messed up for life. <laughs> oh, yeah. The PTSD is real. Um, yeah. And um, there's something about this movie where I feel like there's some horror movies where because, um, I don't know, you learn to really deeply care about these characters. You can get like another movie that feel like you just like brush it off. You're not like too concerned, but I think you come to really love all of these characters so much. Um, it's almost like, it's an exhausted, relieved ending, but it's also, there's a sense of like, that safety isn't secure. Like, mm -hmm. you know, with the TV, like we don't really know if it's over. Um, in fact, there are two more movies, but you know, just talking about- It's interesting. Cause like you say, it is that kind of sense of relief and they found like a sanctuary in this Holiday Inn, but also leaving the TV out, there's still that anxiety there, but it's not like, really sequel baiting you know because sometimes films will do that and it's like oh unless it's a cliffhanger and they're really being like ha, ha, ha. um I like I like the way they they end that 
Is there anything else that you want to mention about this, about Poltergeist or any trivia before we get into box office and our review? Um, yeah, I guess like, you know, not to, to bring it down a little bit, but like this, there, a lot of the stuff that was going on around the filming of these movies, like really mirrored stuff that was going on, which is why it's, there's rumors that this film is cursed, but um, a lot of the actors, both in um, this movie and Poltergeist and some of the movies that came after, um, they died and, you know, like disease to um, an abusive spouse, um, an accident to like, um, just like seemingly, just like a lot of stuff that I think is very easy for people to like point at that and be like, oh, this movie is about ghosts. It must be cursed. Um, but I think probably like the most jarring thing if you watch these movies um, is that um, the little girl playing Carol Ann, Heather O'Rourke, died when in the middle of shooting the third film. She had a, um, an illness that was misdiagnosed and they were forced to finish the film um, using a body double. And it's like, so if you look at these movies as as a whole, as three movies, um, and there's, I mean, there's other other stuff like that that happens around these films too, but I think, you know, Carol Ann, she's so iconic, like she is this movie. Um, I mean, she's <laughs> not in most of the first one, but um, yeah, just very like odd to think about what was going on behind the scenes. And um, yeah, just, uh, it's very sad and it's very bittersweet um to watch it for that reason um so yeah in a, in a weird way like it mirrors the like the danger and the I mean I think this I'm not a parent but I think like for many people watching this it tapped into their, this, their deepest fears of like losing a child I mean that's what is going on in the film and um happens sometimes like life imitates art art imitates life but yeah, for that reason, and knowing all of this now, it was it also like kind of affected me differently. But it's a lot heavier. I feel like the older I get when I go back and watch movies, I'm like, oh, this didn't used to like, <laughs> this part didn't used to hit me. But the stuff with like the kids is like um, hitting me in a different way. So yeah, you know, I, I do love, like I said, my favorite movie, Carol Ann is my favorite final girl. I totally consider her a final girl. I would, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like a bit of a spoiler, but she, you know, she survives, like, after all, at least within these movies, which, you know, like I said, very um, sad things around it, but I see Carol Ann as a, I don't know, important character to me, so. Well, I'm glad to hear that she is, you know, a final girl at the end, and as bittersweet as it is, Heather Burke can still be, you know remembered fondly through the franchise um you know I, I I'd heard about her tragic passing but I didn't realize they had like a body double like for for halfway through the the third uh the third film yeah if you watch the third one like you can you can kind of see visibly um that she wasn't very well and I think they shot more than half of the movie and originally um Spielberg didn't want to shit they were going to can the whole thing and I think the um production was just like we've spent too much money like we have to produce this so um 
yeah definitely um well we'll get on to box office and ratings then so this film um it had a 10.7 million dollar budget so if you equate that from the 70s to now i mean that's pretty significant it might be i don't know conversion of currency in terms of decades later but let's say something like 30 million but it did very well at the box office um it made triple digits it made 121 million i think that also includes things like uh like dvd rentals you know vhs like the block you know, renting films at Blockbuster. Um, so it's it's had a massive accolade and it's a cult classic for a reason. In terms of ratings, IMDb gave Poltergeist 7.3 out of 10. The Rotten Tomatoes critics gave it an 87%, which is pretty good for Rotten Tomatoes. Um, the audience gave it 79 and Metacritics gave it 79. But as we always say on Girlfriends, we don't care what the critics say. We only care about our own opinions. Um, so with that, Jan, what are you going to give Poltergeist a 10? I give this a hundred and <laughs> I, this film, even when I go back and I see, you know, some of the spotty parts, like I, I think all in all, this is just like the perfect popcorn cozy I mean, if you're like a weirdo like me and you find this sort of thing comforting, um, it, yeah, that's what it does. I totally appreciate that. Um, I'm going to give Poltergeist an 8.5 out of 10. I really like this film and I totally understand why you've chosen it as a comfort film because it's got heart to it. It's got like lightheartedness as well as, you know, tragedy and sadness. And it's a bit of a roller coaster of emotions and, I think it's a great one for like a sleepover with your friends as well you know like literally sitting in the living room watching a film based in a living room like it's got, it's got a lot of heart and I feel like you know if if you haven't watched it you know like me there's a lot of cult classics that maybe you haven't seen it's definitely one one to watch so we're going to move on to the second movie of the spooky sleepover so we are getting into the musical mood and we are going to the rocky horror picture show I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Two young, ordinary, healthy kids. Oh, Brad, wasn't it wonderful? Left Denton that late November evening. We must have taken the wrong fork a few miles back. Didn't we pass a castle back down the road a few miles? Maybe they have a telephone I could use. On a night out. Hello. It was a night out they were going to remember for a very long time. Do you guys know how to Madison? So the IMDb plot for this is as follows. A newly engaged couple have a breakdown in an isolated area and must seek shelter at the bizarre residence of Dr. Frankenfurter. This film was released in 1975. It was directed by Jim Sharman, whose other work includes The Night the Prowler and Summer of Secrets, to name but a few. Um, it was the original musical play was rich, uh, written by Richard O'Brien and then the screenplay for this was written by Jim Sharman as well. 
and the cast includes the iconic Tim Curry, Susan Sarandon, and Barry Bostwick, to name just a few. Now, as I said, I like love this film dearly, and I know you've said you also love this film dearly, so we'll get just straight into the plot of it. Um, so let me bring up the notes. Right, so we start off with a criminologist that narrates the tale of the newly engaged couple. And I have to say, when I went to see this in March, the narrator stole the show. Like all the cast was great, but I think the narrator for the one I saw was so good. And I feel like the narrator's underrated in Rocky Horror. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, I uh, I could see that. I feel like to see it performed, like they pro he probably gets like more moments to, mm -hmm kind of shine. Um, so this criminologist uh, narrator is telling the tale of a newly engaged couple, which is Brad Majors and Janet Wise, who find themselves lost. They have a flat tire on a cold and rainy late November evening somewhere near Denton, Texas. They're trying to seek for a phone. Imagine this in 2022. Everyone has everyone has a smartphone, you know, it would be happening then, but the couple walk to a nearby castle where they discover a group of like strange and outlandish people who are holding an annual Transylvanian convention. I'd love this. If I saw this on the side of the road, I'd be like, yes, I'm I'm staying for this. Uh, they're straight away put into the ooky spooky. They're soon swept into the world of Dr. Frankenfurter, a self-proclaimed sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Um, the ensemble of convention attendees includes like Riff Raff, Magenta, and a groupie named Columbia. Is there anyone that's part of the cast, obviously besides Frankenfurter, that like you really relate to or you really like? I I just I love Magenta. Yes. Um, <laughs> I love Magenta in this movie. I love the Magenta that you hear on the uh, the revival of the Broadway cast. It's Daphne Ruid Vega, who is in Rent, not to get complete musical uh, geekdom. But I just, I love how um, dry and sarcastic she is. And I feel like, um, I don't know, I feel like Magenta is the one that is kind of running the show and really knows what's going on. Um, I just, in her, in her fa facial expressions, everything, she's by far my favorite. Do you have a favorite character? Well, probably Magenta as well, because I dressed up as Magenta when I went to go see yeah. it. <laughs> um, but you know, after seeing it as well, I kind of, I kind of love Rocky a little bit as like a himbo. <laughs> like, but Magenta's a class. Like I remember, like I've never grown up my emo phase, but being an emo growing up and loving Rocky Horror, always trying to do my makeup like Magenta, like the really dark, smoky eye and the dark lips. So I had a lot of fun, like trying to recreate that. I had red hair at the time as well. And Lindsay was sitting with me whilst I was curling my hair to make it as big and puffy as possible. Yeah, no, that like, also to say like, you know, if I were in the show, I am not an actor and not a singer, but I feel like Magenta would be the most fun to play also. Yeah, you get to be sassy, boss people around and be like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm the boss here. <laughs> I love all her songs. I do, um, I love Eddie too. I yeah. Like, um, yeah, and oh my god, just Meatloaf, who recently um, passed away, but forever in our hearts and very much in this movie. Um, 
I know I forgot that I don't know why I forgot it when I was re-watching it I was like oh shit meatloaf's in this I, I always forget and then I see it and I'm like oh yeah and then yeah it's really sad after yeah. everything that happened um so we have um Brad and Janet go to the lab claims to have discovered the secret to life itself in his creation of Rocky um the ensuing celebration is interrupted by Eddie who's an ex-delivery boy both Frank and Columbia's ex-lover as well as a partial brain donor to Rocky who rides out a deep freeze on a motorcycle Eddie proceeds to seduce Columbia um gets the Transylvanians dancing and singing and to intrigue Brad and Janet I love this first song that we get and like introduced to like the whole manner and everything um when Rocky starts dancing and joining the performance Frank Frank and Ferg gets a bit jealous and kills Eddie with an ice pick <laughs> what do you think of this like whole whole scene because I mean Frank and Ferg is kind of seen as like polyamorous it's never said but he's pretty much polyamorous you know kind of loves everyone but you know it's it's definitely prone to jealousy yeah um it's funny watching this again like <laughs> They're, uh, Rocky and Frankenfurter, their relationship <laughs> is, uh, it is so complicated. It's so bizarre because it's like, I mean, I would also call it a bit incestuous because there's this like creator. Yeah. I, yeah. And it's very much this constant, like, like we need to protect Rocky, you're my child. And then it's also like sexualizes him. And so it's funny. I... <laughs> Sometimes I still I'm like, what what was it exactly made him want to kill Eddie? Is it is it does he feel like Rocky is being corrupted? Is it like how dare you like burst through my wall and ruin my party? Um yeah. I mean, granted, this movie is just like completely so much of it is absurd. And here I am trying to be like, what is he thinking? Like, what <laughs> what, what um, what's the psychology behind all? <laughs> But yeah, it's like as soon as he sees like Rocky is like Rocky's focus is on someone else. It's not all on him. He's it's like, OK, this guy's got to go. Yeah, uh, I need to get the chainsaw out. <laughs> well, maybe it could be, you know, because it Rocky is a creation of Frank first. But you are because it, it is it is kind of incestuous because it is like the creator and then like quote-unquote monster if you can kind of relate Rocky to Frankenstein but yeah there is also that very sexual relationship and yeah. I mean Rock, Rocky wears the tiniest little outfit and the tiniest little shorts known to mankind um so Columbia screams in horror obviously devastated by Eddie's death but Frank justifies killing Eddie as a mercy killing to Rocky and they depart to the bridal suite Brad and Janet are shown in separate bedrooms and they're each visited and seduced by Frank I think doesn't Frank tries to pose as Brad when visiting Janet and then Janet when visiting Brad once they figure it out they don't stop so yeah it very easily seduced yeah I mean I think even that first scene like certainly with Janet Janet is I mean Janet's even like looking at Rocky yeah <laughs> so I feel like they like they don't even know what this feeling is which is just like yeah this is called being queer or you know yeah. <laughs> called like love this is called polyamory welcome um, <laughs> they, yeah they give they like they said they give into it um i don't know frankenfurter's hot 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm in complete agreement there. Like, it's so funny seeing them at the start. They're very much the representation of like typical straight cisgender couple, and they're seen like being thrown into this world of like lust and sin and things that they're so not used to. But yeah. I mean, my favorite song is like "Touch Me" and like all the singing. You know that I, like you know Janet's fully enthralled by it and is like, yes. Um, so it doesn't take them long to get well acquainted with Frankenfurter. <laughs> Janet's upset and emotional. She wanders off looking for Brad when, who she discovers via like a TV monitor, is in bed with Frank. Um, she then discovers Rocky um, cowering in like his little birth tank from the lab, um, hiding from riffraff. I actually think riffraff's maybe my second favourite. I do love riffraff. He's been tormenting him, poor Rocky. While tending to his wounds, Janet becomes intimate with Rocky as Magenta and Columbia watch from their bedroom monitor. So they're watching all sneaky. So you know, Jan Janet's doing just fine. <laughs> yeah, I, oh my God, I love the two of them watching this. They are so, <laughs> they're just like relishing in this. It's just like, uh, just two little evil minions being like, huh, look at look at everything going on. Um, yeah. Are they also implying, they missed it, or is it, is Janet a virgin? Is that I, what that like you mean she only and Magenta's like yes? <laughs> I think it's implied that they're both virgins like and they're in separate bedrooms because they're not married yet and it's the very stereotypical no sex before marriage. It would make sense because like honestly even when they first come to this house like things aren't that odd yet it's like they see a bunch of people literally just like having an un maybe what they think is unconventional like they're dancing and they're in costume and this is before like anything else happens and they're like oh these people and it just like goes to show like how um conservative and straight-laced they are um so to watch them like quite literally all the layers like <laughs> and they're just sort of like reveal like what like these desires that they've been oppressing but yeah it was just funny watching this I was like oh I I mean, when you're nine years old and watching this film, you're not like, you're not getting any of that. I think I understood, because this was, you know, this was like the 90s, I understood Rocky Horror. I remember my friend's parents actually like admonishing my parents for letting me watch it because there is a man wearing women's clothes in it. How could you let your child watch this? And like, ugh, you know. Um, but even before Frankenfurter comes out, they're like, um, of the word, but it's like, they're, it's like, they're so like sensationalized, like these people just like having a crazy good time at home and doing the time warp. Like that's just that alone is scandalous to them. So it's cool to see where they end up. <laughs> you can say that. Now, I mean, really the epitome of everyone in this film, it, it's like queer joy. It's queer joy at its finest, you know, they, they're, they're being themselves in a place where they don't feel judgment and even like the I mean the political climate in the UK um anybody that says that homophobia doesn't exist in the UK it's a big fat lie especially with uh conversion therapy and you know that being banned but not for trans people so there's still a lot of um like hatred towards the queer community um and you know having queer joy in itself is a bit of a protest to be like I'm going to be happy and express myself exactly as I am fuck the patriarchy and the cishets of the world and to me that's yeah. what Frank and Furter is it's a queer rebellion 
so after we had magenta in, in Colombia, you know, watching on the bedroom monitor, um, after discovering that Rocky's missing, Frank returns to the lab with Brad and Biff Raff, where Frank learns that an intruder has entered the building, which is Brad and Janet's old high school science teacher, Dr. Everett Scott. He's come looking for his nephew, Eddie, little twist. Um, and Frank suspects that Dr. Scott investigates UFOs for the government. Upon learning of Brad and Janet's connection to Dr. Scott, Frank suspects them of like working for him. Brad denies any knowledge of it, and Dr. Scott assures Frank that Brad is like totally not involved. It's quite interesting this time period because of the 70s, because before this with the 60s, I mean, you know, we had things like um like Area 51 and like UFOs and stuff that started to very much become a thing. It's not why I forget these scenes, but I don't equate. Rocky Horror with UFOs and aliens. I just think of the queer costumes and the score and all these kinds of things. So I tend to forget this kind of scene. So do I. And it happens like it's so kind of buried at the end that I'm just like, all right, like, you know, I'm just sort of like queers from space. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because like I don't generally think of Rocky Horror and think like sci fi. Mm-hmm. It can definitely go in that category, but it's more. Um, yeah, everything you were saying before. So um, Frank, Dr. Scott, Brad and Riff Raff then discover Janet and Rocky together under the sheets in Rocky's birth tank. This upsets Frank and Brad. Magenta interrupts the reunion by sounding a massive gong and stating that dinner is ready. I love this. She's just like, boom, like, come on, everyone. Gather the troops. Rocky and the guests share what could be described as a pretty uncomfortable dinner. Um, and they soon realise... This has been prepared from Eddie's mutilated remains. A little bit of little bit of cannibalism there. Janet runs screaming into Rocky's arms, oh, provoking Frank even more to chase her through the halls. Janet, Brad, Scott, Rocky, and uh, Columbia all meet in Frank's lab, where he catches them with the Medusa transducer, transforming them into nude statues. I really like this scene. I like the score that we have in the um, these scenes dresses them in like cabaret costumes and then like unfreezes them or do you think it because this is like probably one of the highlights for me um where we have like the RKO tower as well which is like very reminiscent of like Citizen Kane and like 30s films and stuff yeah no I it's just like the level this film goes to I think like it just becomes like deliciously demented absurd and unhinged and like all the while <laughs> the other thing like, I always forget watching this. It's like, it is called the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like, there's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre moment <laughs> in this film that we just, it's like so easy to forget that. Like, you know, there's like a pretty gruesome murder that happens, but then like, in the, it's just like, all right, moving on. We're just, um, yeah, oh my gosh. There's, a, there's so much going on. To be quite honest, like the last section of this film, I've always been a little like, I don't quite understand like how or why mm-hmm. we got here. That's also fine with me. Um, I love I love all the songs in this music, which I feel like the songs alone um, tell that story. I also just remembered the song "Rose Tint My World." That was like my live <laughs> like live journal. I had a live journal, and "Rose Tint" was uh, my my screen name handle Li- live journal oh my god you brought me back so many memories <laughs> yeah I'm not gonna say like the numbers god forbid anyone like digs it up but like rose tint 
was, yeah, I was really into Rocky Horror, um, like specifically in high school was like my Rocky Horror phase. I never exited. I still love this movie deeply. Uh, but that was when I got, you know, really kind of like um, deeply into it. It's just so nice to hear somebody talking about Live Journal. There's a couple other things I've mentioned before, like Tori, who was on uh, last week when we were talking about Femme Fatales, we were talking about Vampire Freaks. And it was so nice to have somebody else that was on that site because that, like, who experienced it, it was very much like an emo kind of website. Kind of like, I don't know if you grew up with like Bebo um, or like MySpace. It was kind of like that, but really just for goths. Yeah, MySpace. I mean, yeah, I've definitely been around. <laughs> MySpace and there was the whole um I'm like I wasn't emo but I sort of like you know I would like look at I would look at like what they call like both like the emo kids and we also had like the scene kids and yeah like, I'm not really sure like what not totally sure the major distinction <laughs> between the two but there's I mean there's stuff that like such iconic stuff and they like they gave themselves like names like handles like we there was this girl at my high school I don't know like what MySpace famous means but it was like Molly Mascara and she had like this iconic straightened black hair and this like eyeliner that like ended like you know like panda eyes yeah <laughs> yeah that was like all during you know like we we took selfies back then we took them with like mm -hmm. disposable cameras and like digital cameras but um yeah it was like I mean I never got into it but like the costuming mm -hmm. of it all too I feel like you know the the youngers um they have no idea what like people used to know <laughs> and the dress this is the hair the hair alone I was always like I'm sorry I'm going on a tangent for a minute but like the I always like really admired just like the hair texturing the hair sculpture that you would see no one <laughs> I don't know how people did that. My hair would never do that. Well, fun little fact, because I mean, I used to to try and do my hair like that. You'd get like a razor and like you'd have completely short hair at the top to make it puff out. And you just back comb the shit out of it and cover it in hairspray like it was a rock. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, and they would have like the big hair and then like just like very thin like extensions. <laughs> yeah, I hope like there's someone listening to this right now being like, what the... <laughs> Just like look Google what like MySpace emo kids yeah and you'll have a a darn a jolly good time. I'm I'm very like low key better because like now for Gen Z they have and um, like what they call it e girls and e boys and like it's very all it's it's kind of like a a light emo light version of emo and I'm like you didn't go through the bullying I did wearing chokers at school and reading Twilight and like being a little goth kid like no you need an initiation you need to be bullied first before you get to do that what was your do you remember what your song on myspace was or like one of them oh uh, so i mean i'm still a massive my chemical <laughs> romance fan like i have an mcr tattoo on my chest like i really into it so i think it was probably um oh i'm trying to think um probably something from three cheers for sweet revenge i would say maybe like Helena or something um but the dedication to your MySpace page as well because you used to have to do the coding in the back end as well to like get like your backgrounds and your music yeah. and all that stuff yeah the same with live journal the only 
I don't remember it now, but the only coding I knew was like to get a cool background on the blogs, nostalgia. What was your song on MySpace? Cause I'm curious now. Uh, yeah. So like I, at the time I wasn't like really into the same music. Like I hung out with these, like the punkiest kids at my school. And I somehow through them, I discovered uh, my version of that was were the Dresden Dolls. Um, okay. Palmer, which to this day, like favorite, um, some of my favorite musicians. And I probably, I was someone that would like change my stuff around constantly, but there's the song Dirty Business by the Dresden Dolls um, probably was on there for a while. Oh God, now I want to like go and see if like those pages are still up. You should have a look, go, go into the archives. <laughs> but um, going back to Rocky Horror, it is related because we are just reminiscing about our teen years and, you know, being in yeah. love with, with Frankenfurt. Um, so after he's like chasing Janet through the halls, Janet, Brad, Scott, Dr. Scott, Ricky, Rocky and Columbia all meet in Frank's lab. Oh yeah, I mentioned that. So yeah, we have the big sing song and this is where we get like sweet transvestite and there's the RKO tower, swimming pool, Frank's seen as the leader. And then this is where we get like the twist, if you will. So Riff Raff and Magenta interrupt the performance. And I think this is what you're referring to where things go a little bit strange because they reveal themselves and Frank to be aliens from the planet transsexual in the galaxy of Transylvania. Now, like looking at it now for more of like, cause I write about queer horror from like an academic lens, like outside the podcast. And, um, you know, I, I, I write for here Scream. I, I, I write for a few different things about queer horror and queer theory. Um, I don't know if it's like uh, a take on the alienization and the otherness of like gender fluid and, and, and trans people. I don't, that's the only kind of connection I can make. I don't know if you'd like maybe agree with that, but like, I don't, that's how I see it. Um, you know, looking at it a little bit older. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it. Like my, um, I mean, I don't know enough about the history, who wrote, like who wrote this to begin with, what the idea was around the character of Frankenfurter, because I think, you know, there are things about the performance and even the language that is like a little dated today. Mm -hmm. And so like, I mean, this is actually something I don't know. Like our words, this sounds like such a silly question, but like, were, was, are the writers queers? <laughs> you know, like they, they are. Oh no, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm not sure actually. I'd have to, I'd have to have, I mean, we did have queer writers. I mean, look back at like, you know, James Whale, uh, who directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. He was an out gay man in the 1930s. So it very well could be that the writer for this was, but I, I'm not sure actually. I'd have to have a look at that. Yeah, I don't know either. I'm just like thinking of like where, when this came into kind of the queer canon. And um, I mean, it was definitely like, you know, like I said, like quite young. It was, it was the first time I learned the word transsexual, which, you know, to me just meant like, you're a man wearing quote unquote women's clothes. And you know, today, like my thoughts on like what that means, especially as a non-binary person are like so different. So it's interesting um, to think about like when this was made and also just the casting of um, Tim Curry in general. Like I was actually, it's funny looking at Tim Curry in this movie because I just watched a documentary about it. About, oh, okay. Like, 
of it. And um, God, Tim Curry has some range going from Pennywise to Franken or Frankenfurter to Pennywise. Yeah, I mean, what about? Well, I guess that is your take on it. That's interesting though, because like that puts like a whole deeper meaning into it that I hadn't thought about. Because I think like one of the reasons why I was always a little confused was because like okay, this kind of feels like thrown in at the end and it's like campy and fun it's a musical and okay like whatever I'll I'm willing to go wherever you want to go so there's like a reveal at the end that they're aliens I'm actually excited now to like hear this take on it because that just um just really elevates <laughs> elevates the material for me if you think about it as well from like a historical context so like um and I was speaking about this at uh a queer research conference a couple of years uh, a couple of weeks ago I was speaking at a university um the impact of the Hayes Code on horror and queer representation in film because the Hayes Code came into place in the 30s and it um, got abolished in the 60s but essentially it censored a lot of things it was inherently racist sexist homophobic and you couldn't show queer people on screen if you did they had to be queer coded and they had to be shown to be punished for being gay. So that's where we get tropes like bury your gays, lesbian bed death, like all these tropes of gay people come from the Hayes Code. And because the Hayes Code was abolished in the 60s, even though we still have those tropes, I know just thinking of it, maybe Rocky Horror is kind of like a big fuck you to the Hayes Code because yeah. you were allowed to show those things on screen. Um, yeah. This came in like right after that basically just in the next decade yeah exactly so I don't know if it's like Frank Furter is this representation of like queer rebellion and being out and being yourself but also there is this like out with their queer circle they are still seen as like aliens and monsters by the mm -hmm. cisgender heterosexual world that Bram Janet live in wow you just blew my mind <laughs> <laughs> so many so many ways it's something um, to think about yeah no i i really like i never i've sort of that's the part of this movie as much as i love it i've never quite been able to figure it out and i guess also like having done any digging myself i've just been like i it was more like my my way in was sort of like i'm a musical theater nerd i love the music <laughs> in this. i love the celebration i love um like the em embracing freakdom like every you know the um whatever that means to you um yeah i'm very happy to <laughs> have all of the all of this now i mean it's open to interpretation somebody else maybe one of our listeners will be like no i like i see it this way but i mean that's yeah. the beauty of media I, I good though i mean it it feels <laughs> it feels good to me i love yeah i love hearing people's takes on um, you know, we're all right, we're all wrong. Yeah, all good. very true. <laughs> um, so they stage a coup and announce a plan to return to their home planet. And in the process, they kill Columbia and Frank, who has failed his mission. An enraged Rocky gathers Frank in his arms, climbs to the top of the tower and plunges his death in the pool below. So this is a really sad scene. You know, we've had a lot of like campiness and hilarity. I know we had that like Texas Chainsaw moment and we had eddie die but seeing frank die and then you know frank uh sorry frank frank die and then rocky like plunging to his death because he's like i can't live without you it's really sad yeah it always i mean <laughs> it's so weird to say but it like i call it this feeling that i get from something like this 
I get it gives me like the Bambi vibes you know it's like yeah like creator and I mean there's there's all kinds of things about this relationship but um you know it's like not just like potentially you're like your lover but it's also like the parent and just like yeah it, it brings like all of a sudden very like this really sad moment and this otherwise like very you know like the tone is very different for the rest of the film I'm definitely going to use Bambi effect going forward I like that <laughs> yeah, it's when it's like you know like a child is like mourning for the parent that's what I that's the feeling it's it's a Bambi or like um, the fox and the hound when like the fox gets abandoned and like, sorry I didn't like trigger everyone listening <laughs> not even watch that movie um but yeah just that kind of heart twisting <laughs> those heart twisting moments that's probably like because growing up I really wasn't into Disney princess films but I loved films with animals so like um, old dogs go to heaven Fox and the Hound was one of my favorites and when Dalmatians yes 101 Dalmatians um American Tale all those kind of classic cartoon ones but Fox and the Hound is brutal I mean when she leaves him in the rain and she goes off in her little car oh it it breaks my soul that is I mean I feel like my abandonment issues go tracing (laughs) getting a complex from watching that I can't even believe but yeah very much there <laughs> after this very sad scene Riff Raff and Magenta release Brad Janet and Dr Scott and then depart by lifting off into the castle itself so the castle can like teleport and elevate um survivors are then left crawling in the dirt and the narrator concludes that the human race is equivalent to insects crawling on the planet's surface lost in time and lost in space and that's that's the ending it's it's quite an ominous ending at that point and it um I don't how do you how do you feel about that kind of last little bit I'm not entirely sure I feel like um I don't know if I know how to put it into words it's it's like that that reminder like even in a film like this that there is um sort of like these dark forces almost I don't I honestly don't even know if I totally understand it I'd actually love to to hear um what you think that this um this means or yeah kind of going I mean I like making everything queer but like the whole scene like the humans as the insects to me it's just like Frank and Farter the aliens they're seen as queer and then like the humans are the, the straight cisgender Christian very you know white white picket fence America and um it's kind of them just is it, it's it's kind of the main theme I'm seeing I'm seeing from this no that that tracks with me it's funny because like um something that I hadn't even picked up um before until I watched this again even like the first scene um with the narrator um, I didn't realize he's taught he's like talking about Brad and Janet and like I'm about to take you on a very strange journey I didn't realize he's like looking at like police reports yeah that's true um, which just like it gave it just gave me a chill to just because it, it implies like when you're watching for the first time that doesn't really mean anything to you but it's like I started imagining like the aftermath like like Brad and Janet just kind of like 
walking away from this house like what like what just yeah. happened and like oh my god imagine that police report <laughs> imagine trying to explain what happened to someone that wasn't there like oh my god <laughs> is this house what edibles did you take <laughs> oh my god i uh i love i love i can never find anyone i love doing the time warp i can never yes. find anyone that like respects this movie or that song enough I've actually like I've gone to karaoke and requested that song no it's always it's like you know people I'm just I'm the only one that's excited about it <laughs> that is a crime because I also love karaoke so if I was there I'd be joining you straight away <laughs> yeah, I dance too like I'm very um I like dancing but my processing of choreography I was like this is simple enough <laughs> like I literally <laughs> what to do in the song do you have a favorite song from the movie or like uh, top yeah I would probably say it's touch a touch a touch me I just love that so much what about you the special shout outs I mean I I do love the time warp it's iconic mm-hmm. I don't know I have like weird personal things like remembering like rose tint was my screen name and also like people used to say to me because my name is Jan they'd be like damn it Janet oh yeah <laughs> yeah oh and um over at the frankenstein place definitely that's such yeah so uh so beautiful um and i love listening um again like the recording like if you want to like go further um like the different recordings of this i love like magenta and riffraff the voices it's and it's such distinguished voices as well like you can tell who they are straight away yeah that's the I do I do love um magenta and riffraff so much um and is uh riffraff is he one of the writers oh um could be I'm just having a look at some trivia just now but he he might be actually right now um, cause I think what I'm thinking like, is that Richard O'Brien? Ah, uh, okay. Um, see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Riff Raff is Richard O'Brien. Oh. Who is one of the, um, is credited for the original musical play. Um, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Making a cameo in, in a film about a musical that you wrote about. That's pretty badass. On the note of your on the note of trivia, um, there was a couple things that I wanted to mention. So when Rocky Horror first aired, like well, it got released, um, it had like a traditional release. So it had like an afternoon and an early evening screening, kind of like, I mean, that's still how we have cinema screenings in the UK, really. Um, but it bombed. So Meatloaf said that he attended an opening week performance with uh, Jim Sharman, who's the writer and director, um, and the theatre was empty except for them. But midnight screenings became popular in the mid-1970s and like word of mouth spread. So it began showing at midnight. So Rocky Horror kind of paved the way for midnight showings as we know it now. And, you know, there's so many films that I grew up with and I watched a midnight showing of. Like I said, I love Twilight, like unironically. So I used to go to the Twilight midnight screenings and then like Star Wars as well. I'm a big sci-fi nerd. So, you know, when Star Wars was released near Christmas Day or on Christmas Day and going to the midnight showing, like... There's, there's just like a fun about it. I don't know if you go to midnight showings or did you like grow up going to midnight showings or anything like that? Uh, no, I didn't go to midnight showings, but I did 
this reminded me i did see i guess it was at midnight now i like i'm in my my current age like staying up late is difficult but i think i did see it might have been like a 10 o'clock showing but i did actually go to see rocky horror in the theaters and i, I went with an experienced person so when they said like um who's never seen who's a virgin my friend was like don't raise your hand <laughs> Because they make you go up and like make like orgasm. <laughs> like today, honestly, I don't know. Today, I would probably just go up there and be like, "Yeah, this is fun." At the time, though, I would have been like <laughs> totally freaked out. I was like still in college. Um, a couple other bits of trivia. So Richard O'Brien created Rocky Horror from his love of classic science fiction horror movies. So there was a bit of a love for sci-fi there as well. I think it was maybe kind of um, like the old kind of B-movie style sci- sci-fi movies that he wanted to kind of play into the ridiculous of it. The green surgical brown, uh, the green surgical gown that Frankenfurter wears, which is what Lindsay wore when we went to go see it. Uh, it has a pink triangle over his heart. This actually has quite a political context. So the triangle was used by the Nazis in concentration camps to denote that the wearer was gay, but it's pointing downward. The pink triangle points upwards, often used as a symbol of gay pride. So again, that shows like gay rebellion. Tim Curry has stated that uh, Frankenfurter is pansexual. Like he's said outrightly, it's not gay, yeah. he's actually pansexual, which checks out completely. Absolutely does. Um, what else do we have? Oh, Vincent Price. Vincent Price was offered the role of the criminologist, but turned it down due to scheduling conflicts. He was interested in the role as he'd seen the West End musical and loved it. That's a shame because I love Vincent Price, and if you could, he's such a good narrator. Right. But I mean, the narrator we have in it is still really good. But I mean, yeah, I I have a soft spot for for Vincent Price. There's plenty of other trivia in here, but those are kind of like the the main ones. In terms of, this really surprised me. So the, the budget for Rocky Horror, if you compare it to Poltergeist, it's actually really small. They only had a $1.4 million budget, but they completely blew the waters. They made a killing off of this. It um, rose $226 million at the box office, which is absolutely insane, because after the midnight screenings, that's when it started to get popularity. Um, mm-hmm. People had known about it from the West End musical, but it, I mean, it was the movie that really made the musical like get a lot of love so that's just that's that's mad to me but yeah. very glad it's got the following that it has now too I loved revisiting it I realized I hadn't like obviously obviously like I got really into musical theater in high school and um, I went through Rocky Heart period and then sort of like jumped on to specifically the musical theater I mean the uh what do you call it? The Broadway revival mm-hmm. uh, recording. I guess I sort of like, I didn't think I hadn't revisited the movie recently. And it was like, it brought up, it was so fun to to go back um, to the original. And Before we get into box office and ratings, I, I want to know, since you're saying that you're a self-proclaimed uh, like musical theater nerd, what's your favorite musical? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> my... I would say I have like two answers. So the musical that really was like my gateway drug to theater and really just completely turned my life around in that regard is Rent. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and uh, I'm actually currently writing about uh, rent in one of my plays, which is um, fun and also like <laughs> revisiting my childhood. Um, and then my other favorite is a musical called Passing Strange. Um, it's a bit lesser known, but like quite unconventional um, in terms of sound. Yeah, I could, I mean, there's a show I love called Here Lies Love. Um, I love, I don't know, I love like rock unconventional sounding shows. I'm also just a fan of like beautiful sounds <laughs> in general. Um, I, you know, play like musicals, plays. Um, I'm trying to think what mine would be because I was thinking, I was like, oh, they're probably one of the classics, but then like I, I say recently, like maybe about two years ago, I watched Anne and the Apocalypse and I love that musical. I don't know if you've seen it. I actually, I I know I've heard such good things about it and I've never watched it. It's um it's based in Scotland, so that's really close to my heart because we don't get enough Scottish film and musicals. Because when everyone thinks of Scotland, they think of like train spotting um or brave heart and then in horror it's like dog soldiers or like the wicker man but and in the apocalypse like it's it's scottish at its core but it's not stereotypical and uh, it's about zombies it's got queer representation it's kind of like a musical version of Shaun of the dead a little bit but with teens yeah. in a high school like i can't recommend it enough there's a song in it called hollywood ending and it is on like my daily spotify it's so good that is so fun. This is also, this is not musical theater, but kind of adjacent. I recently discovered this band my friend recommended to me. And I don't know if the genre would technically be the metal alternative, oh. but it's um it's this band called Ice Nine Kills. I and love Ice Nine Kills. <laughs> like earlier, my friend, I I had like a listen a while back, but I really got into them today. So I was listening to the song, um, one of their recent ones it's called the shower scene it's so good it obviously it's obviously it's about the scene in psycho and then i listened to i was cracking up um their jason's mom has got it going on yeah like, <laughs> um but i it's so cool and the american psycho one too but that was just i i i love that that exists so much and that that it reminds me a little bit of like kind of fallout boy meets panic of the disco meets mm -hmm. something else but um music <laughs> it's very out. meta that the the cover art for for those songs because that whole album is inspired by horror movies and you should look yeah. up the cover art because it's really it's stunning and it's just so good yeah i love the lyric you can't escape the shower scene yeah oh, no. oh my god no life is just a bunch of shower scenes <laughs> sure that, that's a great quote we're gonna use that <laughs> the episode title um but back so going on to ratings for rocky horror um imbd gave it a 7.4 out of 10 rotten tomatoes the critics gave it 78 the audience gave it 85 metacritic a little bit harsh 65 percent but what are you going to Right, Rocky Horror Jam out of 10. Um, I think if I were doing a 10 out of 10, I'd say maybe an eight. And that's just because for no real, this is, I obsessively rate things like on Goodreads, I'm such a weirdo. It's just because it doesn't quite hit that all time. Mm -hmm. Favorite, not on my top 10. It's kind of like just 
below it and I do have, I mean, it is, I have, I do have history with it and I love it. And that's why I was so excited when um, you told me that that was the movie you chose. Um, but yeah, eight, did I say eight? Eight and a half, like for me, that, that's, an, that's an A. That's, <laughs> that's a good grade coming from me. What about you? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, I gave Poltergeist an 8.5 as well, so I'm very happy to hear that. Um, I'm going to give Rocky Horror a 10 out of 10. It's just, it's a big comfort movie for me, not just because it's queer, but also the costuming, what it represents. Um, it's such a classic, and I have a lot of memories growing up watching it, but also, like, I mean, when I went to go see it in March, that's not the first time I've seen a live performance of it as well. So there's just like a lot of nostalgia there. But even without that, I think like anyone that watches this movie will have a good time. Like if you're in a, if you've had a crappy day, you want to come home, put something on that's like an easy watch. I think Rocky Horror is a great one. So a 10 out of 10 for me. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I've I've been having a stressful couple of weeks and I finally, you know, I was like, let me make a to-do list of all the things I need to do. And, you know, a lot of the things on that to-do list were not fun, but I have on my, on the to-do list was watch Rocky Horror. So it was so fun to be like, okay, workday is over. I get to now, it's actually my homework. I need to, like, it's not even that I I want to, like, I, this is my assignment. And it was, it's so (laughs) great your assignment for the day, any horror movie, but also Rocky Horror. It was it was great. <laughs> well, I'm glad that your homework, your assignment could be a good one. Um, but yeah, that is the end of the spooky sleepover. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. This is so fun. Where can people find you on social media, John, if they want to see everything that you're doing? Um, I would say my Twitter, which is kick the jam, all one word. And I'm also on Instagram emotional support snack <laughs> or Love you can that. just google my name uh, my instagram is currently on private for random reasons but i will i am accepting don't take that as a boundary um and i've i mean i've got a website and stuff but social media is all my creepy little horror gushings go Perfect. Well, be sure to follow Jan, everyone. Um, if you want to follow me, you can find me at Lulu underscore Pew on all the socials, talking all things gays and horror. You can find all my writing there. Um, if you want to follow Lindsay, she's Hi, it's Lindsay on all socials. And if you want to follow the podcast, we're at GoFriendPod on Twitter, GoFriends underscore podcast on Instagram. And next week, our theme is called Fuck the Patriarchy. Uh, We are joined by the amazing Cynthia, and we're going to be talking about Under the Shadow and Prevenge. I'm really excited to talk about Prevenge. I've been wanting to talk about it for a hot minute. So thank you, everyone. Thank you again, Jan, so much for joining us. Uh, Stay safe, everyone, and stay spooky. Spooky.